Father, we're grateful for the opportunity to learn and grow uh, in your word and in our understanding of the world around us so that we might be better prepared disciples. Uh, Help us to uh, not only understand but uh, know rightly how to deal with the cultural circumstances that we find ourselves in. Uh, Thank you for your Holy Spirit's presence with us and within us so that uh, we can, while we can do nothing in our own strength, um, in your spirit we can be uh, transformed by the renewing of your minds. Uh, We thank you and we ask you to bless our time here this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, We're on the last chapter. I actually wanted to read a paragraph or so at the beginning the end, because um, this chapter begins with like a vast understatement. So um, I'll read it. You don't have to follow along. For traditional Christians, that would be us, the narrative of this book is inevitably a somewhat depressing one, <laughs> as it points both to past transformations and the notion of selfhood that challenge our views at every level and indicates that the world in which we now live is hostile to expression of our beliefs on these matters. Um, I, had, I, I substituted at uh, Portland Christian for three days. They called me on short notice and I wasn't doing anything else. So I said, sure. Um, I thought there was going to be there for a week or two, but they, they got a permanent hire. I been up front for a long time. I've, I've taught there before that I wasn't interested in a full-time job, but they'll probably call me again when they need somebody. But So I taught there three years ago, and I'm not saying anything bad about Portland Christian. Uh, my grandkids go there, and I'm, I'm just happy, really happy about that. Um, and uh, I'm their transportation in the morning. But there really seemed to be a difference in kids. We had a brief discussion because it was part of the subject matter in, in, the, in the Bible curriculum. I taught, I had a conglomeration of classes, including math, uh, which I love math conceptually, but I'll just leave that at that. I can't teach it. So they were doing a self-learning program. But in Bible, I can. I've actually taught the curriculum we had before there. And... Uh, the, the question of gay identity came up, and I could tell by some of the discussion there was a variance of, an, of opinion, but one young man, uh, you know, a typical teenager, there wasn't anything bad about him or anything, actually asked, uh, well, why does anybody have, why, why do people have any problem with it, somebody being gay? Why, why do they even care about that? Um, and we had a discussion in one class about that. And it went back and forth a little bit. I actually tried to use one of uh, Dr. Truman's examples, and I'll just say it kind of went over their heads, um, though I tried to adapt it. But I thought it was interesting in that this is, this is a conservative Christian school uh, filled with adults who are conservative Christians, and they have a conservative Christian faith statement, which I think is a really good faith statement, um, 
And you know how there's such a thing as verbal faux pas? Well, I don't know what the, what's the opposite of a faux pas when you say something and it's really good that you said it. So I had to fill out all this paperwork, amazingly so, because apparently it lapsed from the last time I was there. And I filled out the face statement. And it's a really good face statement. And I noticed from the change in the print that they, since the last time I had worked there, which was 2019, 2020, they had changed a statement. They had already had a statement on traditional marriage. You know, one man, one woman. This was, you know, God created male and female, two genders, and they didn't say two and only two, and there aren't 57. But you could tell the statement was added because of the what's happened, and I'm not saying it just happened in the last three years, but it just caught up to them, and they they felt the need to put this in. And and I I commented on you know I I really like the face statement to the principal, and she's an interim principal too. And I I commented even on that. That was a really good statement. Yeah, I said, oh really? Well, yeah, I wrote that. <laughs> so. So I, I complimented her without even knowing it. So that was whatever the opposite of a faux pas is. But, but just in the class itself and in that face statement, you know, I noticed that even in the most conservative of places, um, I, I think you, most of you have heard of Portland. Uh, it was formed by a consortium of Churches of Christ, just like Southeast is formed by a consortium of uh, Christian churches. Uh, I mean, they've expanded beyond that original milieu, but um, very conservative, um, very family-oriented. Um, and even there, I really wonder about uh, the formation of some of these kids. And, and you know, it wasn't like, uh, even if I had was going to teach full-time the Bible curriculum, uh, which that's about the only job I have told them that I would be willing to accept like permanent. I'd be part-time Bible teacher if you want me to. So, um, but apparently they don't want me to hurt my feelings. No, it just, they want somebody who can teach more than two classes a day. And that's about all that I'm willing. Although I said that to my grandson who's eight and he said, well, what about four? <laughs> and I, I, I thought about it, but so what we're talking about now, today, uh, how this affects the church, it's, it's really out there um, in all its glory or lack thereof. And so some of the things he's going to say here really hit home, and it wasn't just the first time I've noticed this. And, uh, and I consider Portland a very faithful group of people. Uh, the, the school itself, I think, uh, well, it's not perfect. No, no school is, but, um, but simply because they're dealing with, you know, real kids from real families, they're going to have to deal with these issues. And actually, the, the principal was aware of this. Um, so the major premise of this chapter, which is the Kali chapter, we now live in a culture... And everything he said, you know, fits into the statement in which Christianity is no longer a major influence on our social imaginaria or imaginary. And he says, well, I'll just quote him. Um, this is a discussion question. And that's one thing um, 
I ran, we're just going to use this questions in the back of the book. Uh, because of uh, having to teach all day for three days and to uh, have had to, you know, I finally decided, you know, last night at midnight, I, I really need to go to bed because I have to get up at six o'clock. Uh, I didn't get around to discussion questions. We have the full thing. But I think there's plenty to discuss. He writes this, the era when Christians could disagree with the broader convictions of the secular world and yet still find themselves respected as decent members of society is large as, at large is coming to an end, if indeed it has not ended already. And so people might say, well, I don't see that in Kentucky yet. Well, we do see it in places. Kentucky is one of those states that's like a conservative bubble, although I never understand why they, they go presidential Republican and state Democrat. You know, I'm not making a comment that's good, bad, but it's just odd. Um, well, it's not that conservative. I just see so many no on Amendment 2 signs. Right. Kind of disturbing. In Louisville and the East End, you're right. Okay. Yeah, well, parts of the East End are a bubble within a bubble. The third district, anybody like farther east, we're in the third district. The first, the third district has one, I think the only, correct me if I'm wrong, the only Democrat representative Congress in the state of Kentucky. So we're, we're in a liberal bubble within a conservative bubble within a, a bubble that's kind of mixed, you know. But a lot of this stuff happens in a lot of places. And as he says, it's, it's trending, as the kids say. Um, anyway, in this new situation, this strange new world, Christians must be deliberate in seeking to understand how we should live and how we can avoid conforming to the culture. Uh, like Paul said, do not conform to this world, but be transformed. So understanding I complicity. Uh, does anybody remember when Al Franken was actually a good comedian instead of a bad politician? Um, okay. <laughs> so he used to, what was it, Stuart? Uh, 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 what was the name of the skit? His name was Stuart. Uh, Stuart Smalley. And uh, affirmations. And he would look in the mirror and say, you're good enough, you're bright enough, and doggone it, people like you. So you can do it, girl. Uh, just so you know, I have one for the men coming up. I'm going to abbreviate expressive individualism as EI because I got tired of typing out expressive. I'm a two-finger typer. Um, I wrote an entire dissertation with these two fingers. He's uh, not wrong about everything. Um, Although uh, Truman doesn't put it that this way, but I would say it's more wrong than not. Um, he, it does affirm that we... I'm summarizing what Truman says, by the way. So if you disagree with this, you're not actually disagreeing with me. I, I mean, I might... I actually agree with what he's saying here. But if you, if you, if you do disagree, then... You're disagreeing with him, which is fine. It does affirm that we are complex persons with real inner lives, which is true. Um, although it's 
it, it's not just now, actually it's not as recent, but uh, I do remember it was referred to as when, when meditation was first becoming popular, and probably even before then it was derisively referred to as navel-gazing. Anybody ever hear the expression, and this did not mean watching the ships go by. Um, navel-gazing is just, you know, contemplating your own self in an absurd fashion. Um, and the importance, uh, it stresses, so, but we do have inner lives. This is undeniable. Uh, people are real psychological beings. Um, but the problem has become that we have, it, well, it's exactly what Dr. Truman says. I, I noticed this before I could put a name to it. Uh, at uh, the, another Christian school I, I taught at, the psychologizing of the self. And we'll, we'll talk about more of that in one of the slides coming up. And the therapeutizing, I don't know if that's actually really a word, but the therapeutizing of Christianity and the gospel. So it does stress the universal dignity of all human beings and the importance of personal faith as a response to the gospel. So it, it is, you know, it is... It is about me and Jesus. It just isn't all about me and Jesus. And if you end there, you're missing the point. So expressive individualism gets the point that you, it, you do need to, uh, of yourself, uh, hear the word of faith. Nevertheless, expressive individualism has so psychologized our view of the self that Christians and churches now pander to the felt needs of the psychologized self. This like smacked me in the head, but because back in the seventies, which was the beginning of, has anybody heard of the church growth movement? I uh, I forget the guy's name um, who actually came up with this idea, but he was a professor at Fuller Seminary, um, and I'm not well. I guess by inference, I am criticizing uh, Rick Warren, but his church Saddleback. Uh, Saddleback Baptist Church, was it? Um, Saddleback Community Church is like a paradigm example of the church growth movement, as was Willow Creek in, in uh, outside Chicago. I forget which suburb. but um, This was the, the applying of psychology and marketing techniques to the idea of church growth. And it always bothered me um, but I remember it, it, it was, it was kind of like a mentor of mine, and it wasn't his idea. He was sharing some ideas about evangelism. And when talk about, well, this is what you do. You, you, you get in touch with the felt needs of an individual you're trying to evangelize, and then, of course, you're supposed to shift it over to eternal needs, but... But, you know, that's just supposed to be the in an evangelist. So somebody's depressed, for example, and you, you, you know, you, you befriend them and you talk about them, but then you shift it. So there was supposed to be a shift, you know, from the felt needs to the real spiritual needs, which is you're a sinner who needs to be saved by grace. What, has, what happened is we moved from that to forgetting about the shift part. Now it's just like God is there to fulfill your needs, which are primarily psychological. 
Uh, Truman doesn't say all that, but he certainly implies it to, in that statement. We tend to choose the church. He focuses on church choice, and it has become, oh, this has been an issue for decades. It has become a matter of consumerism. There are so many churches that churches basically have to become like uh, uh, retail outlets and attract people with advertising and bright lights and Christmas programs. Um, anyway, um, stop me if you have any questions. Um, anyway, the cult of personal happiness, that's a very apt phrase. Uh, understanding our complicity, number two. I, he says we're complicit in expressive individual and the psychologizing and the therapeutizing of the culture in Christianity. The influence of uh, expressive individualism and our complicity with it can also be seen in the cult of personal happiness. Therapeutic culture has influenced Christianity. That's either a typo or an incomplete thought. Has uh, influenced Christianity so much that being well-adjusted and happy is often seen as the point of the gospel rather than salvation and the forgiveness of sins. Now, God is not opposed to being happy. God will not thwart your happiness simply because he can or that your being happy is an obstacle he feels you need to overcome in and of itself. But as a matter of fact, your personal happiness is not his aim. Your, you could say your personal holiness, but there's that verse in Romans. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. It's Romans 5, isn't it? Um, where it says, or maybe it's 8, uh, all things together, all things work together for the good for those who are called according to God's purposes. And I actually brought that up in some discussion in one of the Bible classes today, and I forget which one and what the context was. But the point here is that we often interpret the good as simply our own personal happiness. God wants us to be happy. Uh, so much so that he'll work out everything uh, so that all the choices we make and everything we do will result in our own personal happiness. But that's not what he means. The good that's being talked about there, you, you, could, uh, you could summarize it as holiness, but what it is is God wants to make you like Christ. That's the good. So whatever, he's going to refine you as gold, which, you know, is a very fiery process. But that's been reduced to personal happiness. The most interesting case I saw of this, particularly related to the sexual revolution, was a case was back right after Al Mohler became president of the Southern Baptist Convention. So it was like mid-90s. And there was a case where there was a student with same-sex attraction, and they didn't kick him out because he admitted this. They kicked him out because he, ref he refused to pledge to celibacy. He just wouldn't do it. Uh, I wish I had saved all this articles. Boy, this bit went back and forth in the Western Recorder, which was the Baptist newspaper. I was a Baptist at the time. I was still in seminary. Um, and I remember a statement. I forget where it was recorded, but I think it was either the Western Recorder 
the Baptist newspaper or the Courier Journal. Uh, I'm not quoting, but this is the paraphrase and a fair gist of it. So the student in question, who, you know, confessed to being quote-unquote gay, said this was his reasoning, is that he knew that God wanted him to be happy. And he couldn't be happy if he wasn't gay and, you know, engaged in homosexual behavior. Therefore, that was okay with God. I'm, I'm not exaggerating his reasoning. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, and I remember reading at the time, I said, my good grief. And this was, uh, it's 1922, this was, let's say, 94, because I graduated uh, the last time from Southern in 95. And so that was, uh, quick math, 28 years ago, right? So 28 years ago, you've got this cult of personal happiness, having somebody justify in their own mind that their sexual behavior, despite whatever the Bible says, he has reasoned theologically, quote unquote, that God wants him to be uh, homosexual because he can't be happy otherwise. Um, And again, you know, I'm sure if I were actually making an argument and debate, I'd have to cite my sources and you'd have to go back through the Courier Journal or Western Recorder archives, but I assure you I'm fairly summarizing what the guy said. Uh, there are there are no fresh. Well, there are now because there's Boyce. Boyce wasn't there. No, he was an MDiv student, master's level student. Like his first year. That I couldn't say. Did you think that he would have a little bit better logic and understanding? You would think. But apparently, well, I would think too. <laughs> but but I would be wrong. Um, uh, there is a just a really great Catholic phrase. I apply it otherwise than it's intended, but invincible ignorance. Um, it has to do with uh, why some people are not culpable for certain sins. I, I'm not even saying it's a good idea spiritually, but it's just an apt phrase in certain situations. Invincible ignorance. Um, don't know the con. That's totally out of context. I I do not know. I know it has to do with it's probably venial sins versus mortal sins. But I have met people who were invincibly ignorant, or as they say in the South, you can't fix stupid. Okay, um, there. That's my Bubba philosophy for the day. Therapeutic culture has influenced Christianity so much that being well-adjusted and happy is often seen as the point of the gospel rather than salvation and the forgiveness of sins. Um, Above all else, God wants you to be happy. There's actually a word for this. Some of you might have read a bit by uh, Christian Smith, and I can't remember the other guy's name, uh, other lady's name. Uh, The book is... And I forget the name of the book. But they did a wide-ranging psychological and sociological. um, The subtitle is The Spiritual Life of of Teenagers or Adolescents. And they they are the ones that coined the term moral therapeutic uh, deism, uh, MTD for short. And this is the idea, and this is 
what this reminds me of. Moral therapeutic deism. Uh, there's a God, you know, but he really isn't all that involved with your life. He primarily wants you to be happy. You know, you, you only really need to call on him when you're in some kind of need. Uh, and basically, you know, the morality is, you know, be kind and don't judge others. Um, it's, it's a very vague spirituality. And if you imagine things can't get worse, well, some, not just young folks, but some people have moved beyond that to, you know, agnostic theological deism, and then even there's atheistic, um, therapeutic, um, not even deism. Um, Often we allow our emotions to govern ethics when a relative or friend comes out as gay or transgender, and I'm sure there are exceptions at this point, but I would dare say most of us have some relative who identifies as gay or transgender. I have one of each. Uh, I mean, not my immediate family, no one who actually lives in Kentucky. Um, but I think we talked about this before. So when I've, you know, I, I love, okay, it's my niece. Uh, you know, I love her, and the subject doesn't come up. Um, on the other hand, I have a, I'm not sure of the exact relation, kind of like a grandnephew kind of thing, but, um, and I won't say how or when or anything else, but he identifies as transgender, and this is where I'm just not going to be able to see him because I, I, I would just feel like if I went in a situation like that uh, and, I, and I see this young man dressed as a woman and pretending to be a woman, I would feel like that little boy in the story of the Emperor's New Clothes. I would try and be kind. Maybe I'd leave. But I felt I would have to point this out to him. I said, you, you know you're really not a man, don't you? I mean, you're, you're really not a woman, don't you? Um, and there's some provinces in Canada well, that will get you thrown in jail. In this strange new world, we are all complicit in some way. Um, and this idea of personal happiness, uh, the cult of personal, really goes deeper than the health and wealth or prosperity gospel. There is that, but this infiltrates even uh, supposed evangelical Christianity of, of all denominations. Um, and this is not something that is, is I, I like the way Dr. Truman articulates it, but this, this is nothing new. Finally, uh, he says we can address our complicity in three ways. And they're very basic, um, but they're also very true. Uh, examining ourselves and repenting, um, for the details, we could, you can read the book. Um, how am I involved in that? Uh, how, how am I thinking that God is just you know, my personal life coach to help me ensure my... Um, personal happiness. There is actually a book. Well, there was a book, but it, Jesus, colon, Life Coach. And then there's one, Jesus, CEO. Um, and these are like soul and evangelical bookstores sometimes. Um, anyway, and then a lot of this stuff is is just depressingly similar when you when you even glance through it in a bookstore. Uh, examining ourselves and repenting. Number two, cultivating humility. I'm 
okay, he said that, and he might have had a few hints and tips, but, you know, what did C.S. Lewis about humility? He said, humility is not, uh, well, I don't think he said humility is, uh, was it, well, anyway. It's not thinking It's not thinking of less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. I don't think he said that's the, what did he say that was the self-denial? I think that's what he said. But anyway, that's the same as humility. Not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And I'm not a mystic, um, uh, and, and, I, and I often wonder how well you can accomplish that. I, I do believe character can change over time. Uh, I mean, if we didn't believe that, we, didn't, we wouldn't do formation. But cultivating humility, I, I, I can't imagine anything that would be very much harder because most of the time our attitude, who did, was it Glenn Campbell? Who did that song? No, um, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're <coughs> perfect in every way. I can't wait to look in the mirror because I get better looking these days. To know me is to love me. Um, anyway, and it, 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 it is a parody, but this... Actually, we kind of all believe that. Like, oh, like, like the pictures say, there's that guy. It's just hard to be humble. Look at me there. Um, and I, again, I'm quoting him. Feel free to disagree or comment. Jump in anytime. Uh, in the future, uh, we need to practice appropriate self-criticism and policing. I, I'm not sure exactly how one practices that, either individually or the church, and he doesn't go into much detail. Uh, there are spiritual disciplines. You know, there's, there's like the, the rule of Benedict. There's Ignatius. Uh, most of these kinds of spiritual rules and self-examination that have their origins in the Catholic Church. Um, gee, I, I actually think a good one is to read the prayers of confession in the prayer book regularly and take them to heart that they actually are true and they're really about you. You know, I have done what I have done. I have not done those things I ought to do, and I have done those things I ought not to do. I have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, um, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, anyway, appropriate self-criticism and self-plea regarding our attitudes towards church. He, he focused in that. I, I admit I thought it was a little odd that he picked that one. He, he's not only talking about that, but he picked the idea of church choice as an example. He said, well, we don't do this for strictly theological reasons. Well, nobody ever did anyway. Um, but he's true is that, you know, you shouldn't get ticked off at somebody or a pastor or a way somebody's playing the guitar and just decide, well, you know, I'm going to go to a better church because I like the band better. I admit, though, I, I wouldn't necessarily leave a church just for that reasons, but drums and worship music just can't deal with it. You know, just, you know, a regular drum kit. Uh, just please, never, never. Okay. I'll, I'll leave. I'll leave. <laughs> Drums, guitar, you know, and, you know, I don't think I could take banjo either. And don't mistake me. I like bluegrass music and I like banjo, but banjo worship, no. Couldn't deal with it. Um, I like jazz too, but I'm not sure saxophones would be good for worship. Um, 
violins, guitar, piano, of course. Um, anyway, he's saying we should not use these kind of trivial criteria and, and make where you go to church a matter of consumerism. And he focuses on that, and I just want to say, although I don't know, that he's using this as a paradigm example. We should apply his suggestions here to every aspect, but he really does focus on that. Stick with your church unless there's a really good theological reason to leave. Um, and I, I have done that twice. Well, once, and here I am. And then another time, I moved, went from one Baptist church to another church, uh, another Baptist church. And I, I won't say who, where, why, or when, but I think I was perfectly justified in saying we're going to move our membership. Um, I think he's so much focusing on the trivialities of the reasons as the connection to your feelings. Well, right. And that would be the kind of trivialities because, you know, if you feel like my, my needs aren't being met. Well, if your needs truly aren't being met, you know, but your need is to hear the gospel, uh, and your need to, and he does focus uh, rightly on worship, and you could say the godly formation of Christian uh, sensibility through appropriate music. Um, and and by the way, I don't know if you maybe you make the selections. I makes the selections. Uh, I, I'm just I happen to think the selection of music is great, um, and the, the words. In some of the songs, some of which I heard, I'd like to hear Be Thou My Vision more. Well, I, I can only think of like one time we've done it, so let's do that again. <laughs> That's one of my favorite, favorite songs. And there's actually verses in that that nobody sings um, that we ought to do too. It's a great song. And it's Celtic, just so, you know, the Irish saved civilization. Um, Another thing he says, as well as understanding our own complicity, learn from the ancient church. Um, I'm paraphrasing that as also early Christianity, but of course it was the ancient church. Uh, the precedent we need to look to in responding to our times is earlier Christianity. Um, I think it's good to look at the Reformation. Yesterday was Reformation. That's right, isn't it? And today the second. I've been losing track of time. I thought it was the first. Okay, All Saints Day. So it was October 31st he nailed the theses? Okay. Um, though I, then I need to go correct some error on Twitter and Facebook then. Okay. Hashtag nailed it. <laughs> oh, well, I saw a Luther meme on Facebook. Um, uh, you know, it's obviously an older painting. It's obviously not contemporary, showing a younger Luther. And, you know, he's... The thing is, it wasn't like... It was, that's what you did when you wanted to have a debate. I'll, I'll, I'll finish. I can see you glancing at your watch there. Um, uh, but it was a meme showing him nailing the theses, but what he was saying was, there's nothing wrong with the door. I'm fixing your theology. Okay, there were people standing by, and that didn't happen. When you wanted to have a debate, you nailed your theses to the, to the church door. It was just the common thing to do. It's just his obviously changed the world. Uh, early Christianity was a little understood to despise marginal sect. We are not there yet, but we are getting to be a little understood and despised. 
Um, in this situation, the early church emphasized community and the formation of Christian identity. You know, I, I don't want to just say, well, gosh, we're great. But that is what's emphasized. You know, you can, well, you know, I'm just doing what I'm asked. So somebody, mostly Nick, I'm sure, with some of the help from the vestry, is that's what we're emphasizing. Um, how we engage in worship and fellowship is also crucial. And I admit I'm an Anglican partially because of the Book of Common Prayer. Um, you know, it's absolutely good for formation. And in fact, uh, Cranmer wrote it uh, to preach the gospel even if you had bad preachers. Um, and if you actually uh, recite the liturgy on a Sunday morning and you actually believe it, well, you, you are a saved Christian. Um, the church in worship is the most powerful witness to the gospel and the best way to engage the culture is by presenting it with another culture. I, I just think that's right. We don't need to, to have better production values than the world. We simply need to be better. Uh, we, need to, we need to be different from the world. We need another culture rooted in worship and a loving community. Uh, teach the whole counsel of God's word. Christianity is a coherent whole. Uh, we're doing that. Michael teaches the sacraments class. Nick teaches uh, the formations, no, explorations class. And so we are trying to, uh, I say we, like, you know, it was my idea. I, it wasn't my idea. Um, anyway, uh, it's a worldview. Our foundations in God's truth must be broad and deep. And we must ensure that God's people are being intentionally grounded in God's truth. Uh, uh, confession or catechism is a good place to start. Um, always reminds me of that story, probably apocryphal, where uh, everybody knows who Vince Lombardi is, right? Uh, great coach. The Packers were dominant in the 60s and 70s when I first started watching football. They had a particularly bad loss one day, and next practice, Coach Lombardi thought he needed to sort of deal with things. And so, so he got up in front of the players. I don't tell this well because I'm being very quick. And he said, men, we're, we're going to uh, emphasize the basics. So he picks up this oblong leather object, and he holds it up and said, gentlemen, this is a football. And... That's what we need to do, is we need to go over the basics and build from there. Shape intuitions through biblical worship. You know, it's like this guy is making an argument for Anglicanism. He's an Orthodox Presbyterian, and that's okay. But, but um, understood properly as emphasizing human dignity and seeing our inner self, our emotions and desires properly as means and not ends of themselves, expressive individualism can tell us important truths. That's a summary, I think a fair summary of what uh, Truman says. But rather than choosing worship forms and songs that emphasize emotions for emotion's sake, uh, we need to focus on choosing forms that will shape our intuitions within and toward God's great truths. Um, I, have, I have said to, well, anybody that wanted to hear me just, you know, rant, and in any situation for, for I don't know how many years that evangelicalism is anti-intellectual and emotion-based. Evangelicalism in general. Um, and, and, I mean, it's a, it's a general statement, and there, there are cases where, of course, this isn't true. 
But it's a fair summary of a lot of what passes for Christianity, uh, any intellectualism and open. Don't, don't understand your, just, just believe, just believe. Um, anyway, we need to focus on choosing forms that will shape our intuitions within and towards God's great truths. In other words, the music we pick should do that. So remember, be thou my vision, okay? Um, no, seriously, some of the songs, some of them I'm familiar with, we do, and then some of the newer ones I'm not, but they're, they're really good songs. I mean, basically, you're singing the truth. You're singing theology and truth. Uh, last, well, not quite last, but almost last. Natural law and the theology of the body. Um, I'm a little surprised you bring up natural law. Not that it bothers me, because I actually believe in natural law. A lot of people don't. Um, a lot of people thought Thomas Aquinas was just, you know, second to the Antichrist as far as how he corrupted Christianity. That's not true. I'm not saying he was right about everything, but um, that's a slight on him. So he was, he, he, is, uh, he is criticized because he borrowed the idea of natural law from, well, he started with Aristotle, modified it, Christianized it, um, Aristotelian thinking and his understanding of natural law is probably the most influential in Christendom today. The church needs to recover an understanding of natural law and a theology of the body. I think he's correct. We need to explain God's truth in terminology that people understand it. It can be faithful to the scripture without using the language of Zion, as they say. Uh, it is important for Christians to understand that biblical morality, including sexual morality, is not a set of arbitrary rules, but the best practices... Okay, that's I put single quotes because he doesn't use the term best practices. That's mine. For human flourishing in the world that God created. It's because God created the world. He created it the way it is. It is what it is. And he created us. We are what we are. To live in this world that what God says is for our own good, uh, for our flourishing. It's for shalom, among other things. Natural law and a proper biblical theology of human being and bodies can show that God's commands make sense given the way the world is, which is absolutely true. If any of you are thinking of a dissertation in Old Testament theology, I think one would be a comparison of uh, wisdom literature, particularly Proverbs, to natural law. You know, how can you synthesize that? I'm not saying you can. I'm just saying that's an interesting thought. Neither despair nor optimism. This is good because, um, just so you know, with, with knowing our inner states, I tend to be a somewhat melancholic individual. Uh, um, so I try not to sit too long and think about all the problems in the world <laughs> all by myself. Uh, as Truman recognizes, the narrative of this book is inevitably a somewhat depressing one. Nevertheless, we need not despair, nor should we be optimistic. Um, you know, optimist, the glass is half full. The pessimist, the glass is half empty. The realist, you know, it's a quart jar. It'd take another pint or so to fill it up. That's realism. Optimism is the belief that everything will be fine if everyone just sits tight and waits. Not exactly, but I think it's appropriate to the situation he's talking about. 
What we do have is hope. And hope is, it's, it's not wishful thinking. If you pay attention um, to the way uh, people use the word hope, more often than not, it is wishful thinking, which is not hope. You know, gee, I hope I win the lottery. Well, that's delusion, you know, but I hope everything turns out. That's not a hope. Uh, Christian hope is confidence that we trust a God that, that whatever is happening now, what will eventually happen will actually be the best. Uh, I know Leibniz got created, I think it was Leibniz, for saying, you know, that this is the best of all possible worlds. But it is. Because if you say it isn't, then you say, well, God could have done better. And actually, that's what humans do all the time. Well, we can do better than that. Um, So Christian hope, just trust God, even when, that's what faith is. I mean, we can't even understand the Trinity and the Incarnation. How are we going to know God's purposes in every minutia of history? But I trust God's character, so I have hope that I know that he knows what he is doing and that we have an expectation that God and particularly Jesus Christ will fulfill his promises. Now, Truman didn't say all that, but I'm sure he would agree with it. Um, We cannot always expect to have comfortable lives. I admit, you know, I'm not rich, but, you know, I have a nicer house than 99% of the human beings who have ever lived in history because most of them lived in huts. So I have a reasonably comfortable life. Everybody here has a reasonably comfortable life. We all suffer physically, but, you know, that, that's not a guarantee. Uh, Truman's right about that. Our calling is to live faithfully in time and place. It's one of the themes I didn't get time to look up is I wanted to look. I said, wow, that sounds like Lord of the Rings, uh, where... Uh, maybe Johnny can help me. Frodo says to, to Gandalf... You know, I, I, you know I, I'm sorry to see these times and says, I'm really, how, what does he say exactly? And, and then Gandalf says, no one wants to see these times and we don't have any choice in it. All we can do is, is do what we are supposed to do in this situation. My gosh, that is just a, a totally inept paraphrase of, well, we of what he said. What to do with the time that is given to us. Right. Anyway... Um, it's just a really apt phrase. If, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, and you may not be, and I understand, but God is never mentioned, but providence is always all, everywhere in evidence. It just is. There is an unseen and actually unnamed uh, benevolent force in action in, in Middle Earth. Our calling is to live faithfully in the time and place we have been set we need to prepare ourselves, dot, dot, dot. And I was going to read uh, the rest of that because it's a lengthy statement and I didn't want to type it all out because it was late and I wanted to go to bed. Um, and then we can move on to the, the questions because, yeah, it's about... So we need to prepare ourselves, uh, be informed, know what we believe and why we believe, worship God in a manner that forms us as true disciples and pilgrims, intellectually and intuitively, and keep before our eyes the unbreakable promises that the Lord has made and confirmed in Jesus Christ. This is not a time for hopeless despair nor naive optimism. 
Yes, let us lament. Lament isn't despair. Lament the ravages of the fall as they play out in the distinctive ways that our generation has chosen. But let that lamentation be the context for sharpening our identity as the people of God and our hunger for the great consummation that awaits at the marriage feast of the Lamb. So that's the end of the book.